You're listening to the Book of Basketball 2.0 podcast. This is the 2009 Redraftables that I did with my friend Zach Lowe on his podcast, The Low Post, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. They were gracious enough to let me run the podcast here on the Book of Basketball 2.0 feed. My name is Bill Simmons. I'm with Zach Lowe, and this is the Book of Basketball. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast, where I'm about to inflict on my old boss, Bill Simmons, one of my 2014 Grantland.com fantasies, which is stealing your idea of redraftables. But for a draft, I always wanted to redraft with you, which is one of my all-time favorite ones, the 2009 draft of Blake Griffin and Steph Curry and James Harden. So, Mr. Simmons, how are you doing? Well, you know, when I did that piece in 2014 and I tried to redraft everything, Blake Griffin was the first pick five years later in the redraft. And now he is not the first pick because Stephen Curry and James Harden were also in this draft. It's in a, how this draft has evolved over the last 10 years. You're right. Your instincts were correct. This is the, this is the best one to do probably out of all of them. Well, and it has also one of the all-time sort of earth-shattering league altering mistake picks at number two with Hashim to beat who clearly we're going to redraft the top 14 spoiler alert Hashim to beat is not going to make the top 14 and he went to Memphis which frees Oklahoma City to take Harden and blah 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 all the way from there um you know it's it's almost it's not quite Darko level because those Pistons were so good in 2003 when they had a chance to not draft Darko and draft you know Mello or somebody instead but it's it's a pretty big uh, matzo ball hanging out there. Um, because I, you know, am- what's interesting though. So you normally that would probably be the biggest storyline in a draft, right? And in this draft, it's probably like fourth. But I wh- love what's interesting so about much. the beat? We should just talk about it now and get it over with. It was terrible as it was happening. If you go through every other pick that became a bust, and you look back at how people actually felt about it in the moment. All the busts were at least there was 20% defensible. Like even Darko, everyone had talked about, oh my God, his workouts are amazing. They don't necessarily need a perimeter. Like you could make the case. With the beat, there was no case. It was, a, the only thing I can really compare it to is when the Clippers took all of a candy, where it's just like, don't do this. This is bad. Take someone else. This is a mistake. And then when they actually took him, Everyone was like, wow. I mean, I went back and I read the draft hour I did. In the moment, it was like, this is a disaster. I can't believe they did this. So so you're right and wrong. Number one, you were on it. Like, I reread your draft diary, and you were like, this is indefensible. This is a stupid pick. I can't believe how stupid these teams are to beat as a stiff. I read some of the draft grades the day after draft grades, and most of them were like, the beat's probably going to be pretty solid. Like, that's a defensible pick for Memphis. Harden, Terrible. there was like there was like a lot of skepticism about Harden at number three, which we can talk about when, uh, when we get there. Yeah, um, but I had like, some skepticism. But it's not as if to beat if Memphis passes on him, 
I'm not sure Tabit falls any further than Oklahoma City, and he's not like going to fall out of the top five. Like the, he was pretty. And I talked to, I did more preparation for this than usual because I love this draft so much. I talked to a lot of people who were, let's say, in and around the league in 2009. I was like, what did people see in Tabit? Because I was just sort of dabbling in NBA coverage at that time. I wasn't like really into it. I wasn't full time, and I kept hearing kind of like what Hibbert ended up becoming, but with a little more athleticism. And then you also heard like, but he just didn't have any idea what was going on in the game. And I'm like, well, that's kind of a red flag for me. Like, doesn't have any idea what's going on in the game. It's kind of a red flag. Well, the other thing is I test, he fails. He's an F minus. If you saw him in person, you just need to watch him run for two minutes and be like, oh, that guy's never going to be an NBA player. I, I, I think it's funny. They thought he was more athletic than Hibbert. I think Hibbert as it turned out, was way more athletic than Thabit. He just ran like somebody who was towing a speedboat behind him. <laughs> and so here's the other thing. This is this is where it completely falls apart from Memphis. And Chris Wallace has done a good job over the years of, of uh, you know, basically any mistake that's ever happened, it was somebody else's fault. The Pau Gasol trade, which happens uh, February 2008, and is completely indefensible, in the moment it was indefensible, after it happened, it was indefensible because they didn't shop him. But then the defense belatedly became, well, we got Marcus Gasol and we knew yeah, he was going to be really good. And we knew he was a winner. So if you knew Marcus Gasol was really good, then why 14 months later did you take to beat? Why'd you do it? Why the two orders, Colonel Jessup? You knew Marcus Gasol was going to be this stud center, but then you took another stud center at number two. If you knew Gasol was going to be good, even by June 2009, Take somebody who would compliment Gasol. Take a perimeter guy. So I just think Memphis is full of and and they, these are indefensible moves. Not to mention they traded Kevin Love the previous year. Yeah, the Love Mayo exchange did not work out for them. And you're, I'm glad you brought that up because I looked back and I was like, okay, let me see where Memphis was when they made this decision. And Gasol had already been there um, for a year and like was a good rookie. I think it was like 11 and five. It's rookie. He's like he was clearly going to be a good player. It wasn't like he was putting up two points and two rebounds in garbage time. And Conley, Conley was like a slow burn development guy. You didn't know exactly what he was going to be. Obviously, we know what he became. And to think of Conley, Gasol, and they end up stealing Zach Randolph after this draft because the Clippers needed to get rid of him because they drafted Blake yeah. Griffin. And you throw a two guard who's good on that team, like better than what they ended up having, that, that's a... That's a fun team. The $64,000 question, which is a reference only old people like us will get, um, is if they take Harden at number two, who is Oklahoma City taking? I don't know the answer to that question. I can tell you that they were linked heavily to Rubio in rumors, linked heavily to Rubio and linked heavily to Tabit. And if you look at, it's really interesting to go back and read the Rubio stuff because people are like, well, Russ isn't a point guard, so they need a true point guard. Rubio would be the perfect fit there. You know, Ru Ru Rubio, Russ, Durant is is a great fit. And then but, but, the but nobody knew Russ was going to be Russ yet after his no, rookie year. We knew he was going to be an awesome energy guy and maybe a good starter. I don't think anybody saw All-NBA yet. And the pure point him. guard thing was definitely a question. And, like, this idea that Durant needed or would would – you know, there was already fear of Durant leaving Oklahoma City by that point. Like, it was already talked about. And this idea that if they got someone who was pass first and could set him up, that would really please Durant was in the ether. The to beat one, and again, I have no idea who Oklahoma City would have picked. I'm not trying to pretend like I do. But if you just look at their track record around that time, of all the places they tried to reach to find 
the sort of classic big banging rim protecting center to round out their lineup from Tyson Chandler to Kendrick Perkins and on and on. Like you, it, it wouldn't be surprising if that had ended up being their pick. That's all. I'm so thinking. my counter to that is I think Sam Presti realized he won the lottery literally and figuratively with Durant and all the choices he made after that were who compliments Kevin Durant, this guy who is going to be this franchise defining guy for us. That's how you end up with Westbrook. That's really how you end up with Harden. If you read the quotes that he did those first couple years, he put a lot of thought into Harden's mindset. And it's hilarious now considering the player he turned into, but Harden's ability to be a complimentary player, to not be somebody who dominated the ball and all that stuff. I mean, who was how fine coming off the amazing. bench? Was was fine coming off the bench. Right. So I think I actually think Curry made the most sense. I I wrote in the draft diary, I wrote first of all, I was wrong on the class. I said it Quote, it's the worst draft class since the infamous Kenya Martin draft of 2000. If I had to bet my life on any 2009 prospect becoming a top three player in a championship team, I'd bet on Blake Griffin, Ricky Rubio, and Stephen Curry. I was incredibly high on, on Rubio. And I think it's important for us to point out the only reason he wasn't a guaranteed top three pick was because nobody knew if he was coming over or not. People didn't want to wait the two years. And now if you think about it, it's actually brilliant to take a guy who might not come over for two years because you can tank again. It's like a retank. So well, it, I, I, the the pick Memphis should have taken is Rubio and just waited for him or used him as a trade asset. I always felt like they took to beat because they kind of couldn't figure out what to do. And it was like, well, there, ah, and they just took a center and it's a disaster. There were also rumors to that point, And this is, I, I don't, I can't really confirm that any of these are completely true, but there were rumors that Memphis because maybe they didn't know what to do, was trying to trade down from number two. And one of the rumors that you kept coming up when I was reading the old clips was trying to engage Minnesota, who had five and six, to, in a deal that would have moved Minnesota up to two because Minnesota was so hot on Rubio and worried that Rubio wasn't going to slip all the way to them. So to your point about Rubio, was he going to come over? His buyout was onerous in Spain. It was going to cost a lot of money. And his agent, the late Dan Fagan... I think sent some pretty clear smoke signals that do not draft him Memphis, do not draft him Oklahoma City. We do not want to go to those places. He wanted to go, according to according to people I talked to, he wanted him to go to Sacramento at four because he liked the idea of being in California, being near LA where Dan was based and just having the opportunity to see him more frequently. So there was like, before Blake blew up in college, like Rubio was maybe going to be the number one pick in the draft when he came out. That's like it, it's it it was surprising and unexpected to some degree that he fell to number five. I was all in. I really I absolutely loved him. He was my favorite player in the draft. Him and Curry were my two favorite guys. I didn't know enough about Blake because I didn't see him enough in college. But um, I was so impressed that he played in the gold medal game the year before when he was like seventeen, and. I just thought his feel for the game and his passing ability was at another level. And I really feel, I mean, we could talk about this when we draft him, but I really feel like this was the worst case scenario of his career. I really do. I think if you do his career 20 times, this is the worst. He went to the worst possible team. He got hurt at the worst possible time, right as he was really taken off and him and Al Jefferson, and there was like real stuff happening. And then Kobe, I think, fell into his knee. I, for, I forget what happened, but and it, it was just it was a bad luck career. I still feel like if you do it over again, even if he had gone to Memphis, and maybe they trade Connolly or maybe they trade Rubio, just anything other than how it ended up with him going to Minnesota was just so bad for him. 
Rubio and Gasol playing together. Rubio and Marc Gasol playing together is like a Spanish national team fantasy in the NBA. Those guys well, making magic together. Woo. That was always our joke, right? If we were a GM, just get all the Spanish guys and put them on one team. Make that like the move. Just get Team Spain and go. I So here's the thing. I was doing research on this draft as well. And we I can't believe we haven't talked about Khan yet. What are we at? Like the... Oh, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk. I'm rubbing my hands together. We're going to talk about it. All right. So there's three franchise guys in the top seven. So I went back. I went through every draft ever. I'm like, how rare is this? How rare is it to have a franchise guy? So I tried to narrow it down to were there three guys in the top seven picks where at least two of the guys made a first team all NBA and the third guy at least made a second team all NBA. So you would think, all right, that's got to be like 20 drafts. No, it's five. Here are the drafts. 1977, Marcus Johnson, Walter Davis, Bernard King. 1984, Hakeem, MJ, and Barkley. That's the only time the three draft. in the that's top the, seven. That's, that's the draft. That's, right. that's, like, that's the all-time draft. So that's the only time three guys in the top seven all made a first-team All-NBA. 1987, David Robinson, Scottie Pippen, Kevin Johnson. 2003, LeBron, Melo, Wade. 2008, Rose, Westbrook, Love. And now 2009, um, Griffin, Harden, and Curry. Griffin never made a first-team All-NBA. The other two did. So you're talking, this is six times in the history of the league that this happened. So I the reason I bring that up is I did not see that coming in 2009. I, I honestly felt like it was the worst draft since... 2000 i only really like three guys and it's astonishing to me that it turned out the way it did harden is the one that i mean like people were high on curry like you because they saw that like the upside is spectacular if he hits it it's spectacular blake was blake harden is the one like oklahoma city kind of got trashed for that pick like harden is the one that people did not see coming even as like a really really good complimentary player let alone now what he has become i'm i gave you the number one pick in this redraft i actually think harden has a case to be picked number one i don't think you will pick him but i think there's a case to be made that he should be picked number one i don't know that i would make it either but um harden was a shocker although i did hear an interesting thing from some people in the league that harden was not on anyone's radar at all his freshman year really not like a high level radar and i certainly am not going to go back and watch this film but his freshman year pac-12 tournament at arizona state People were there to watch like Westbrook and some other guys. And this Harden guy who was a little chubby, like couldn't really finish in the lane. Whatever he did, there were some GMs in the stands who were like, oh, that guy's pretty good. To the point that there was some noise that that I've been told about since that like people are like, if we could get this guy in the draft this year, he'll slip out of the lottery. We might be able to steal him at like 20 or 25 or so. So whatever he did in that Pac-12 tournament as a freshman was eventful. But he's the one. I was surprised going back. Oklahoma City got panned for that pick. It was a reach. It was surprising. It was in- that's, that's interesting. I panned it just because I couldn't believe they didn't take Curry or Rubio. And the Harden thing, you know, this is why the draft is such an inexact science. He's only in college two years. He puts up a 25-4. and four his sophomore year, gets to the free throw line. This should have been a red flag for us 270 times in 35 games. That's a good sign, right? All right, a shooting guard that can get into the paint that much. But the word on him was like, eh, it kind of fades in and out of games. 
And that was always code with with an NBA draft for like, oh, shit, do I want to? And then there was another whole asthma thing with him. Did you see that whole storyline? Yeah, you about still, it's how still uh, a storyline as we go into the bubble. Right. So, um, so I can see it, and we've seen it go either way. I, to me, it's incredible. Even going from after he got traded, when both of us were firmly on the side of, I can't believe they traded James Harden. None of us saw what would what he became, that he would become one of the hardest workers in the league and work so hard on his game and his footwork and things like that. There were no signs of that in college. I even remember when I did TV with Doug Collins, the second year I was on Countdown, um, and he, for some reason, had a lot of intel with that Arizona Arizona State team, and just he had seen him play a few times, and he was just like, nobody knew this was coming. But that's why the draft is the draft, right? You're assessing a 19-year-old kid and trying to figure out what he's going to be like as a human being when he's 28, and people missed it. Speaking of which, let's get into the redraft because my top 14, my lottery... Wait, hold on. No, no, oh, we okay. can't do it yet. Okay. We got to do the con. We, we just got to go right. through con. Let's just get it over with. We have to. So this is Can I read year... you his resume? Because it was in my draft diary. It was, very, it was a very funny. It made me chuckle when I read your draft diary. So for the people who stay at home... Portland Oregonian, 84 to 89, NBA sports writer. NBC Sports, 90 to 95, consultant, NBA Showtime. Sure. Proskauer Rose, LLP, 93 to 95, associate. Then I put it as a joke, Four Seasons Hotel, Orlando, 95, <laughs> valet. Uh, Indiana Pacers, 95 to 04. GM, 98 to 02. That's a long, stint. That's a long stint. That's a long stint in Indiana. Right. MLB. 0304 Oregon Stadium campaign and then NBDL 05 to 09 founder Southwest Basketball and it suddenly ended up running the Minnesota Timberwolves and was super arrogant about it and for somebody like me who loves basketball and is writing it it was like this guy fell out of the sky for me it was amazing you even had like Khan from Star Trek as a joke and you know, and he's trying to act like he's Mr. Smarty Pants. Then he makes a good trade. He trades Mike Miller and Randy Foy for the number five pick. He he basically steals that from the Wizards. So now it's like, holy, shit, he's gonna get. He could get Curry and Rubio as this is dropping, and then then it happens. Let's talk. Let's just pause for a second. The last redraft we did on your podcast was, I believe, two thousand one. And we talked about the Celtics trading away rookie Joe Johnson for Rodney Rogers and Tony Delk. And what an insane overreach of a win-now trade that was, even though all the Celtics fans were excited about it because it had been so long since they were yeah. deep in the playoffs. The Wizards trading the number five pick in this draft for Randy Foy and Mike Miller on expiring contracts um, coming off a 19 or 15, I can't remember, win season because everybody got hurt. The Wizards are the are the all-time record holders for most times prematurely declaring that they have a big three on their team. So, like, this big three was Gilbert Arenas, Karan Butler, and Anton Jamison. And I'm sorry, that's not a big three. That's, like, a nice trio of players. It is not a big three. I don't believe Gilbert they ever was hurt won. too. Yeah, Gilbert was always hurt. Karan got hurt a couple times. I don't think they ever won more than 45 games in a season with their quote-unquote big three. Flash forward, in 2009, the young kids are coming. Blatch is on their team. Nick Young's on their team. And remember, Leonsis wrote a blog post in like 2012 or something announcing the new big three has arrived in Washington. And it was John Wall, Jordan Crawford, 
and Andre Blatch. Do you know what happens if you Google that post now? Oh my God. What happened? You know what happened? It's gone. He took it down. It's too embarrassing for Ted Leonsis. It's to be removed. He vaporized it from the internet. Oh Not man, a big I wish three. I could do that Not with a some of my three. pieces. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Ted's, yeah, take, I mean, Ted's take.com. You can't find it. The the Miller Foy trade is a fireable offense because for two reasons. One, it's just a terrible trade. And two, when you think about like teams are pretty active. Cause I remember um I knew Steve Kerr pretty well at that point. And he was really trying to move in, and he's talked about it since. He was really trying to move into the top seven to get a chance at Curry. He thought Curry had a chance to be a transformative player. The irony is he ends up with him. But they're shopping, you know, number th- number 13 or 14, whatever one they had, with Stoudemire, basically to everybody. So if you're the Wizards, you could have potentially had Amari Stoudemire for, and 14 for, for five, which... Even if Amari is an expiring contract, I'd still rather have that than Mike Miller and, and Randy Foy. It's just all of it's so perplexing. So then Khan, we 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 don't know what's going to happen. We're feeling him out. Takes Rubio at five, which was smart. That was the right pick. Good job. And then with six, you just assume it's going to be Curry, right? And then that or or happen. not a point guard or not a point guard or yeah or somebody else. And then you know, and then the other crew. So it was one of the biggest ups in draft history at the time. And then the next pick is Golden State, who wins wins literally wins the lottery because Steph Curry falls to them. And then you have the poor Knicks at number eight, who poor are a pick Knicks. away with this poor guy Knicks. who would have transformed basketball for them. All of it is a documentary. So I'll just tell the David Kahn story now to get yeah, it out of the way. Do it. Um, so you were merciless with David Kahn and not undeservedly so. Although, as you point out, he made a good trade. Did he make the Kevin Love OJ Mayo trade? No, he wasn't there yet. He wasn't there yet. That was McHale. He made a good trade to get number five. Um, and then he made a good trade in this, well, an, an okay trade later in this draft. They draft Ty Lawson, another freaking point guard at 18, and trade him to Denver for a future first. That's okay. Fine. They got something. A couple years later, flash forward, I'm at a board of governors meeting in New York. I'm working for grantland.com, starting to get to know people in the league. Uh, David Kahn is there because Glenn Taylor, the owner of the Wolves at the time, is the chairman of the NBA Board of Governors and must appear at all these press conferences. And so I say, you know what? I, I've never met David Gunn before. I'm going to go up and inter- introduce myself, say hello. And I said, you know, I, I approach him afterwards at around a conference table. I say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm, you. You know me. I'm sort of like the first time I meet someone, yeah. I'm a little meek about it. Um, sorry to bother you. I'm Zach Lowe. I work at Grantland. I just want to put you know, a name to a face. It's nice to meet you. Without missing a beat, he shakes my hand, looks me in the eye and says, Tell your boss he's a <laughs> and I, I honestly, I looked at him and I was like, I kind of respect that, like, like, like I can't. And he, he just, he, and, and then he walked away, and he, it was just like, okay, I, I, I have respect for the directness of that social interaction. I don't know if it was, ex- if I'm quoting him exactly, <laughs> was definitely involved. I made the f bomb, maybe me embellishing, but that's, I like that anyway. Remember, I had him on a podcast eventually. Did you really? Yeah. I had him on, but oh I think it God. was I think it was before you had that interaction with them. What's funny about some of these GMs is they blame people like us for making fun of them for making career ending transactions. It's like it's not my fault to point out that you took Johnny Flynn instead of Steph Curry, that you thought it was a good idea to take a one hundred and eighty pound point guard and put him with another point guard and then have the gall to say this worked with the Knicks with Earl Fra- with Earl Monroe and Walt Frazier, which was an actual quote from him. 
what Ooh. we saw it in the 70s with Frazier and Monroe. It's like, uh, you have Johnny Flynn? That's, <laughs> this is not Frazier and Monroe? What are you talking about? And then, you know, he revealed himself afterwards. But I'll tell you, for me, I look back at the 2000s for what I was trying to do, at least partially with my column, and it was just a godsend of terrible executives all through well, the line. It's really an incredible... I mean, I did the Atrocious GM Summit that time, but... Every time I thought, oh, the well's going to dry up, it would be like, oh, here comes David Kahn. The well's not driven up. Oh, Billy King's going to get hired by the Nets. This is great. Like, it just never ended. It was awesome. I did find a David Kahn quote about how he he also liked to beat and thought to beat would have been a good fit for them. Can you mm. imagine if to beat slips to five and you and Minnesota ends up with to beat and Flynn as a one-two punch? Woo! Unbelievable. Um, it's, I, and I it's too bad because you look at their team. They had Kevin Love and Al Jefferson. Both assets. They had Ricky Rubio asset. They had a pick that could have been Steph Curry. And you could have just put all of those guys on the same team for two years and it would have been weird. It wouldn't have won a title, but it would have been something. And like you said, Rubio, his rookie year was starting to surge and find it. And like the magic that everybody saw in him was beginning to translate. He's a great fit with Kevin Love. Like there was something happening there when he tore his ACL and it just. Ricky Rubio is a good player. I think he helps your team generally, but he just hasn't become it in the NBA the way that we thought. It just it just kind of never reached the level that we thought. And and maybe it's just the simplest explanation is the jump shot stagnated and that's all it is, but there is a magic to his game still, but it it just it just never quite translated the same way. Um, I think he could have had a Rondo like career at the at the worst case scenario if everything played out right for him and he didn't get hurt. Where somebody who unconventional, you look at the sh at the shooting percentages, you're not totally crazy about it. But when you watch him and you watch the effect he has on teammates and ability to rise to the occasion, things like that, I also thought he was a great defensive player before he got hurt. Like he really had signs of, oh man, this guy could be like a first team all defense at some point. And I I just don't feel like. He was ever the same. So it's too bad. Anyway, let's I, pour one I, out for Ricky. I know I put him on an all-defense team at one point on one of my awards ballots, maybe three or four years ago. Now, I think he's still pretty good, but he's lost half a step for sure. All right, let's redraft. I gave you yeah. the number one pick in the draft. Uh, so Team Sim, because I'm nice. I'm a nice person. Also, I get to be I get to be the Oklahoma City and just foist the, the tough decision onto you, and I get to make the easy decision. So who's your first pick? I mean, it's not a tough decision. It's, the, it's Stephen Curry. I get somebody who is a back-to-back -back MVP. I get somebody who's made three first teams, two second teams, and a third team. I get the greatest shooter of all time. I get somebody who is basically a 50-40-90 guy for his entire career, who has a chance for 25,000 points and 4,000 made threes. And most important, I get a culture guy. And I, I think there's been a handful of guys in the history of the league that you could just build your team around and it was going to be okay. And he's this generation's Duncan where it's like the best possible teammate. The fact that the Warriors situation with KD didn't really fall apart until midway through year three to me is almost a credit to the, the culture they had there to begin with because it should have fallen apart in year two and it didn't. Um, I just, and I also think he's somebody that going forward, um, I don't know how many years he's going to play. I think there's going to be a really interesting second piece of his career post-prime when he's still going to be awesome. 
just in a different way, a little, a little like where Ray Allen was probably from 09 on, but a better version of that. And I look at Harden just going forward. It's pretty even. Curry's had more success. Harden has the playoff thing that we talked about on my book of basketball pod pretty extensively that he just has not come through in the playoffs in a real way. And I'm not sure how his game ages with the kind of physicality he's endured with all the time, all the hits. I just wonder what that looks like. So for me, it was actually a pretty easy decision. So you you wouldn't have taken Curry first? No, Team Low is going to take Steph Curry first um, okay. and Harden. So I will now take James Harden second. I think that's the easiest decision on the board for the whole draft. Here's the argument for Harden. Um, as, as the bigger, stronger, more accomplished one-on-one -on -one player, he is a little bit less dependent on his teammates to be the number one option of an elite NBA offense. He is teammate independent. He is just, you stick James Harden at the top of the arc with nobody with nobody near him except his defender, and you have a top five offense in the NBA right away. Um, he's been more durable than Steph. Steph had all the ankle issues early on, although you look at Steph's game games played, it's just one season. It's 26 Pretty games impressive. in his third season. It's Other than that, it's 80, 74, 78, 78, 80, 79. He's been, it's just that one season. Um, and and so that's and obviously Harden's numbers are now more prolific because he's played more minutes and stuff. Um, obviously, I think that gets at the idea that Harden is probably a little better than Steph at raising the floor uh, of your team, but Steph, because of his shooting and his willingness to play off the ball, is a better mesh with one to two to three other really good NBA players than Harden is. Like Harden diminishes the value a little bit of another star next to him because everyone just stands around. I mean, Russ, is, Russ has disproved that a little bit this season, but Curry is the good team ceiling raiser and Harden is the bad team floor raiser. And I, and I think if you're trying to build a championship, you probably want the ceiling raiser guy a little bit more than the floor raiser guy. But I thought there was a case for Harden. I, I wouldn't have taken him, but that's the case. I'm going to nudge back a little bit. Nudge. Curry over a three-year stretch, just regular season, was 207 and 39. And this is only Durant for the last year of that. If you actually go look at that 73 and 9 team, and then even the team before that, I think went 67 and 15 and won the title. The championship team. It's not like that team was like the 85, the 86 Celtics. You know, they had Clay, who's really good who's a possible Hall of Famer. They had Draymond, who's really good, who kind of came into his own that 2015 season. They had uh, Iguodala. But everything revolved around Curry. And, you know, this is a Rosillo point that I think is really good. It's just like it, he's, he's the wide receiver that opens up the offense for everybody else. Like you just put him on one side and the field opens up. That's, that's what I'm and, saying about his ability to... The, 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 yeah. truly, the truly greatest players... The best of the best of the best are, amplify other great players completely. And Steph but I, is one but of those But I think guys. that skill translates to even if he had a weaker supporting cast, I still think that's a valuable skill because— You know what? I think you might be right because even if you look at the finals last year against Toronto, by the time that finals is over, it's like Steph and Andre who can't and won't shoot and Kevon Looney and like just dudes who are not good in the NBA other than Andre who's very good— um, and like they're kind of hanging in games because their entire offense is Steph just runs around and draws three people 
And when he draws three people, yeah, Kevon Looney can finish with one dribble because nobody's near him. I, I actually, I, I think, I think you may be nudging me a little bit on that. So the like the forty-seven win team in two thousand thirteen, their best second best guy was David Lee. Fourth best guy just by scoring was Jared Jack. They had a really young Harrison Barnes, and that was a team that you know they they took two games off the Spurs during a really great Spurs run. Um, and then that 2014 team, which Mark Jackson is the head coach, by the way, that team won 51 games. So I, I don't know. I see what you mean, though. Like, you could put Harden with just a bunch of crap, and he could probably still get to, like, 45 and 37. I'm not sure you could say that with Steph, but I, I think once you get... I don't know. I, I just can... I continue to think Steph is the most underrated guy of the last 15 years, even with other players. He's the one guy that it just seems like... Even the other players like, ah, he's good. He's not that good. It's it's oh, it's just bizarre to me. Well, anyway. and and the um, another feather in in the cap of that argument is that the original death lineup, which is Steph, Clay, Harrison Barnes, Andre Iguodala, and Draymond Green, um, was just as good, if not a little bit better, by the numbers than that same lineup with Durant and Harrison Barnes's place, just because it it became so good that it reached essentially the ceiling of what any five-man lineup can do in the NBA with Harrison Barnes instead of Kevin Durant. Like Kevin Durant just it was not possible for that lineup to get any better. And Steph is obviously the driving force of it. So I also had Steph one, Harden two. The third pick goes to you. It's pretty much a no-brainer, right? One last thing on Steph and Harden, because we talked about Rubio. It was the worst-case scenario if you played it 20 times. I think Steph going to Golden State is the best-case scenario. Because he had all these ankle issues that, in the wrong hands, I think could have changed the course of his career. And he's talked about that. Harden goes to Oklahoma City in his formative years, and he's with two guys who are better than him who work their f***ing asses off every day. And he's around that work ethic for the first three, four years of his career. If he goes to Sacramento and he's just learning from like all the schmucks on that team, does he have the same career? Like, I don't think so. I And I think that's stuff people don't think about when they think about where somebody was drafted. Like, we're doing this redraft, right? The number one pick was owned by the Clippers. If Steph Curry goes to the Clippers, owned by Donald Sterling and is having Oof. ankle issues, Oof. I just don't think his career is the same. James Harden could have gone number two to Memphis, but now he's playing with, like, I don't know, a young Mike Connolly. And I like, does his career play out the same way? I don't know. So I think it played out really well for him. And I, I think the same thing goes for Blake Griffin here, who I'm taking at number three. He he goes and sadly gets hurt. The Clipper curse strikes him immediately. But then, you know, he, he does have Baron Davis, his rookie year, who is a nice point guard to play with. And then Chris Paul shows up the following year. And it, I got to say, his career stats are really impressive. I, I thought his career was impressive in the moment, but you think like three second team all NBAs, two third teams, they were a legit contender at least a couple of those years. In 14 and 15 combined, the last two years we worked together, he played 25 playoff games. He was 25, 10, and five. Those are like real historic. If you're talking about forwards, like how many forwards in history have averaged 25, 10, and five, two straight years? Not many. For his career, he's 21 and nine. He's almost 50% field goal. The, the rub for him is 11 seasons, 622 games. But I look at it like, I think in the 2015 playoffs, I thought he was the third best player in the league. 
going he is. like by round two of that playoffs. And we talked about it on, I think my podcast right before I left ESPN, I thought he'd become the best third, the third best player in the league. He wasn't in all NBA that year. He was 13, but I just thought at the end of it, it's like, if I'm picking a team to try to win the title, he's third on my list. So, you know, he had a good career. Um, had that hurts. Had had a I good think we career. have to use had. I don't, I don't, I don't, he's had too many surgeries at this point. I don't, I don't see a scenario where he's an all NBA guy again. Well, he's become kind of a tragic figure for me in the NBA lexicon just because the Clippers all of a sudden this hot, hot team again, right? And everyone kind of agrees that this, this construction of Kawhi Leonard and Paul George is kind of a smoother, more ready-made championship contender. It feels kind of tougher and easier to fit than the CP, Blake, DeAndre teams that were really, really good, as you said. I mean, really good. Um, all-time meltdowns in both 2014 against the Thunder and 2015 against the Rockets. All-time. But, but all, just all the, the Rockets one remains inexplicable to me. Um, but um, and but Blake is like, Blake is patient zero of the Clippers. None of it happens without Blake. None of it. And And maybe it was easy because they just lucked into the number one pick and this and that, but that team was super fun in Blake's rookie year without CP that Eric Gordon, Blake Griffin pick and roll was like, that was must. People just, people remember cause it's only 10 years ago, but like Blake Griffin, I think Blake Griffin kind of put league pass on the map as a thing that you needed to have in your house. I was going to say, I, I think he put Twitter on the map. He could, like you needed to watch Blake Griffin every single night because he was going to go for a dunk that was going to humiliate somebody so badly and be so powerful that you could not miss a Clippers game. And that was a fun team. And the reason they get Chris Paul is because of Blake Griffin. Chris Paul then turns it and, and then Davidson. they win. They win. It's fair. <laughs> fair. Uh, then they win. And, and the image of the, the franchise begins to change a little bit. Then they end up divesting themselves of Chris and Blake. and But Chris gets them all this other stuff that ends up being super important to their current team. Like none of it happens without Blake Griffin. And let's just say the Clippers go to Orlando and win the championship. Or they win it next year. Or they win it at some point. I hope that they somehow, not pay tribute, but just like the, the, the story of that, if it happens, Blake Griffin is still a character in that story. And he's going to be forgotten as a character in that story because none of it happens if they don't draft Blake Griffin. I had the Clippers season tickets for six, seven years and almost given them up a couple times. And then when he got hurt after they drafted him and he missed his whole rookie year, it was one of those, th this is one of the worst investments I've ever made. When he came back, he was so exciting. I was like going out of my way to go to Clipper games, you know, where it was like, I just want to be in the stands. And it was one of those things where you couldn't look down. Cause I remember there was this one picture. He was about to dunk, like follow up dunk. And I'm looking down at my phone for a second. And you can see me in the background looking down as he's like seven feet over the rim. It was one of those things where you just like, you couldn't look down on your phone if he was out there. Every single play, it seemed like he was going to jump over four or five people. And it's funny, like for me, I the most exciting dunker I ever saw in person was Dominique. I still, like he, when you think about it, you go back to that era and the way he played and just how unusual he was, I think he's been completely lost to history in a lot of ways. There's been other guys, but Blake was the guy of the last 12 years and on top of it I think became a really good player really good passer and unfortunately his body broke down and he had he had a lot of bad luck and I don't know 
if how much of the Clippers curse was involved with that or what. But man, I mean, he's had what eight surgeries at this point, seven. I don't know how many it is, but it's a lot. And everything you just said about you know, Blake. Blake DJ was always like they don't quite have enough shooting in the front court, and you always wanted Blake. the The ideal version of Blake would either be a better three point shooter or have longer arms to protect the rim a little bit more. And the, you don't make ideal players in a lab, right? You just get what you get. And Blake, before the injuries really took a toll, made himself about as well rounded and excellent as a player as as he could be, given his skill set and his height and his wingspan. He became a good mid range shooter, an okay three point shooter. He is one of the 10 or 15 best passing big men of all time. It's indisputable. You just look at the numbers. People don't consider him as such, but he is. Um, I, I hope. Know, I mean, he, if we knew then what we know about basketball now, I I think you would play him as a five. I don't well, think that's, you would it, play him with DeAndre. I think you would play him like the Warriors play Draymond, and I think he would have had a different career. And that's what I mean by everyone everyone or not everyone but people would sometimes focus on the limitations right do i have to play him at five because he's a non-shooter and then i can i can have him roll to the rim and dunk and distribute but but will my defense be able to hold up with blake at five right the way it does with draymond at five because he's not a good nearly as good a defender as Draymond. like all those questions sort of to me obscure what a fine player break blake griffin is by the way not to belabor it but um he will be an interesting hall of fame case when he comes up all those all those years from now um now we go to the fourth pick, and it's my pick. And this is when things get kind of fun. This is when yeah. things get kind of fun. We have Rubio. We have DeMar DeRozan. We have Tyreek Evans. We have some other guys. Um, oh, wow. To me, to, to me, this was an easy pick. It was an easy pick. With the fourth pick in the 2019 redraft, I'm taking Drew Holiday. Oh, I see. See, you didn't say him. I thought I was, he yeah. was going to fall to five. I was excited. He's the best two-way player left available. He's a borderline all-star every year. He would be a multi-time. He is an all. He was an all-star in the East. He would be a multi-time all-star had he not been traded out of the East. He's just a really, really good basketball player. You can look at him as he's stuck in between positions on offense as a liability. I actually look at that as a benefit. I like that he can do a little bit of everything, and he's a monster, monster defensive player across two, three, sometimes even four positions. To me, given, I'd rather have him than Demar Derozan. 10 times out of 10, uh, even though DeMar is probably the more decorated player um, in terms of all NBA and all-star appearances. To me, um, Drew Holiday is more capable of being like the second or third, the third banana probably on a championship team um, than DeMar is. So I'm taking Drew Holiday and I didn't really think about it that much. It's so funny. I just assumed DeRozan was going to be the fourth pick. And then when I actually made my list... And I was like, man, if I was actually the GM, I would just much rather have Drew Holiday the last eleven years. I don't I, have Dem- I don't have Demar fifth. I don't have Demar sixth. No offense to Demar. Wow, really? Yeah. Well, I t- we can talk about my order once you reveal your fifth, sixth, and seventh picks. I just I just had a little fun with this draft, but yeah, to me, I mean, Drew Holiday is an easy choice. You had it too. It sounds like so that means the fifth pick goes to you. One thing with Drew Holiday. Um, a fascinating, fascinating Sam Hinkie trade, right? Where in the moment, so the trade is Nerlens Noel, who's the sixth pick, and a 2014 first round pick for Drew Holiday because we are now going to tank the hell out of this whole thing. And in the moment, it's like, wow, that's a good trade. And now I look back at it and 
they could have just kept Drew Holiday and ended up with like Giannis. Like there's that draft has all of these alternative alter. If they're just been a normal GM and not somebody who's like, I am going to actually destroy this team for three years to get where I need to go with the process. If they had just kept him and then be like, Hey, that Giannis guy looks good. It would have been early for Giannis. But, um, so he goes to new Orleans and you think about it, like you have him and Anthony Davis together, basically at the start of their careers. It's weird that it didn't turn out better than it did. So that'd be the case against Drew Holiday because it's like, well, he was with Anthony Davis from basically a whole decade and nothing good happened. So Well, and he had and he had leg injuries for a while that he's largely cleared by now. Um the other thing about Drew, I'm glad you brought up Drew trades because I wrote a big profile of Drew last year and there was this much rumored um so the Suns, both Alvin Gentry and David Griffin, who's now the GM of the Pelicans, told me on the record, we were going to take Drew Holiday at 14. Okay, Drew Holiday ends up going 17 to the Sixers. We were going to take him at 14, but we thought we had a deal for Steph Curry at 7. That's so we true. didn't need another point guard. And the deal was going to be like Stoudemire and some stuff to move up and 14 to move up to, or so I don't know what it was, to move up to no, seven. No, that was the trade we talked about earlier. Yeah, it was, earlier. It was Stoudemire and so, 14 for seven and Beadrance. The Warriors have said, Larry Riley has said for years, there was no such trade. We never agreed on such trade. They're all talking out of their butts. They all go on the record and say, no, we thought that trade was happening. That's why we took Earl Clark at 14 instead of Drew at 14. We love Drew. Um, so that's why I love this draft. There's just so much stuff going on in this draft. Well, I remember... I remember texting with Steve Kerr that night. Hope I'm not speaking out of school. And he was just so upset that they had this. They thought they had Steph Curry. And and basically, I think what happened, he ends up on the clock. They take him, the Warriors. And I think their fans got excited. And I think sometimes people look at that stuff, right? And Twitter is around at this point, at least a little bit. And there's a certain reaction. And I, I think at some point, they kind of looked at each other and like, yeah, uh, let's try to get out of that Phoenix deal at 14. Um, well, the irony is Phoenix doesn't make the deal and they almost make the finals in 2010 with Amari. Yeah. You know, and uh, if they had had Drew Holiday, that really would have helped because they were like a couple plays away in 2010. But they might not have Amari. Yeah. Um, I just remember related to that David Morway when I was with you at Granlin, I wrote a piece about the Kawhi George Hill trade, which is just an all time yeah. NBA moment. That was and your David breakout Moore piece. David Morway, who was with the Pacers at that time, told me, you know, when we loved Kawhi and when Kawhi fell to us, we did have a moment of truth. Like, Ooh, do we, do we just want to, do we just want to sort of moonwalk out of this trade? So how much or do you believe these guys when they say stuff like that? Because if I was a GM after every draft, I, you know, 2011, if I'm running like Sacramento, I'd be like, oh man, you know, who we loved that year was Kawhi. I would just be telling you and Kevin O'Connor and everybody else I, just to make it seem like I knew everybody was going to be good. But see, in that case, it's almost worse because you knew and you still did the trade and anyway. You, traded and you knew the risk that you were taking by letting go of Kawhi uh, for George. Yeah, Hill. but Which, here's the, the thing. Way, they had Danny Granger and then Paul George and Danny Granger was excellent. And it was like, yeah, we, we actually need a guard. We have a chance to make the finals. And they almost did make the finals. So I don't know. The Kawhi thing is like he couldn't shoot. And San Antonio was like, we're going to fix his shot. There were other people that were like, that guy can't shoot. Uh, you, all right, number five. Who, yeah, who'd you take fifth? So listen, I've in the nerd community, which you're you're tangentially a part of, but you you you've kind of straddle all the worlds. I like I like to be the guy in the high school cafeteria who can migrate from. Yeah, you go from table to yeah. table. 
The nerd community is not like DeMar DeRozan. They're not fans. All I can tell you is this. He's averaged 20 points a game for his career. He made a second-team All-NBA and a third-team All-NBA, which is pretty solid. He played in a conference finals as one of the two best players in the team. He's only 30. He was kind of quietly having, even though I know the Spurs weren't doing that well, and I know all the advanced stats don't really love him or whatever, but he was shooting 53% this year for the Spurs. I love that you just yada, yada, yada the, the fact that his teams are always better when he's on the bench. <laughs> Well, so that's the rub, right? So it's like, all right, well, there's this one issue. But I just look at who's left and it's like, all right, I can get a two guard that averages 20 a game. Like, there's not a lot of those. Look, I think DeMar's good. And I think his passing is underrated. His defense has been so bad. And his absolute refusal to even try shooting threes, with the exception of like half a season in Toronto when the Raptors basically berated him into trying to shoot threes, is... It's just there's just a ceiling on that, but I I don't mind the pick. Can I tell you who my five and six workers are going to laugh at me? I just want to tell you I I just I wasn't taking Jeff Teague. Um, oh God, no, no way. The the Wesley Matthews now like I just going through. It's like well at least Demar Derozan is a twenty point a game scorer. Like I we're just at the point of the draft where I'm going glass half full on some of these guys. So you're going to laugh at my number five and number six picks. We might as well do both of those now. Well, do number six because you you can take number five at number six. So I took Rubio. Well, I'll just give you my order. I took Rubio. I would take Rubio now then. would be My pick now in this draft is Ricky Rubio. That's who I almost took at five. We'll just continue. So Rubio over DeMar based on their NBA resumes is not really defensible. I just, I draft from the, I do these redrafts as an imaginary GM on an imaginary team with a healthy Spurs-like culture and an elite coaching staff. And so I am both, bo- and you'll, you're going to laugh at who I pick next, but I am making these picks with like, I'm taking the guy who I, I'm confident I can get the best version of Ricky Rubio. That sounds, and like the best version of Ricky Rubio to me is so much more interesting than DeMar DeRozan, that even though we never got that guy, and maybe there was only a 20% chance that even my, 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 theoretical ideal team could get that guy. I'm taking the 20% chance over what I know DeMar DeRozan is, which is a very nice player who there's, doesn't really help you win that many basketball games. So I took Rubio. I'll take Rubio at six. Yeah, I had him five on my board. I'll take him at six. I almost took him at five for the same reason. For what we mentioned earlier, if you play his career a bunch of times, what's the best possible version? It's a higher ceiling than DeRozan. The only thing I'll say, though, and I've done a few of these redrafts now that you can listen to on the old book of basketball podcast, but I just think there's a lot of point guards every year. And it, in a way like that, it was almost like with drew holiday at four, like he, just every year there's guards. There's just, even this draft was famous for its point guards. It's so much harder to find a two guard who yeah. can actually produce in a real way. And I, I, this is the same reason why Eric Gordon keeps signing giant contracts. Like there's just That's not a lot of guys like that. That's a very fair point. Uh, you know, Holiday, Holiday, Teague, and Lawson all go back to back. You know, three in a row late in this draft in the real. Draft. Brandon Jennings is in this draft. Brandon Rubio, Jennings is like, there. It's just um, a lot. One of those point guards I knocked down further, probably than most people would on this draft, for the exact reason. I just had point guard fatigue. I, I want, I need to draft a point guard who has a chance to be special. I'm not going to use a pick on in this draft on a point guard who has a chance to be the eleventh, eleventh best point guard in the NBA. Um, all right, so, so I'm take, on the board now at number you're seven. At seven. Yep. So we just did a redraft where Minnesota ended up with Ricky Rubio and DeMar DeRozan. 
That's true. That's Which true. is still better than Ricky Rubio and Johnny Flynn. Number seven. Now, I need a ruling. Is Joe Ingles eligible in this draft? Yes, I have Joe Ingles on my board. Joe Ingles was an undrafted free agent. I texted Joe to see, is it ridiculous? Like, you were technically eligible in 2009. If that was just like a non-starter, like no chance in hell, I'm not going to make you eligible for our redraft. And he said, you know, I talked to my I talked to my agent about it back then. He thought maybe there was a chance in the second round, this and that. So Joe Ingles is eligible, and you're taking him seventh? No. Oh, I was very excited. I have Joe on my board. Joe's in my top 14. I just needed a ruling on Joe Ingles. I was thinking of taking – because I'm also looking at going forward – it's not just like the last 10 years. It's like what's going to happen the next five or six. And I think that's one case with DeRozan versus Rubio. I think DeRozan is going to produce more than Rubio will over the next five years. But uh, I don't feel great about it. I'm not that happy with it. But I'm going to take Wesley Matthews, number seven, three and okay. D guy. Um, we've seen him produce for good teams, at least somewhat. And, you know, I do think if we're talking about, oh, man, if that hadn't happened blank, you know, he had a really serious injury. And if we're if we're saying, like, we have a chance to maybe get the best possible version of this guy and he doesn't blow out his Achilles and athletically, he just I don't feel like was ever totally the same after that. But um, you look at like, you know, in Portland, 2014, um, he's 16 and a half a game. 39% from three. Same thing the next year. He, he's basically a 40% three-point shooter volume, three like a perfect 3 and D guy. I just know he's going to play for whatever team I have. So I think he's the best guy at seven. I had him uh, ninth on my board. I like that pick. What's interesting about this draft is uh, there are two sort of prototypical 3 and D guys who I think are either going to be in both of our top 14s or certainly our candidates. Uh, one was undrafted. That's Wes Matthews. You just picked him seventh. Uh, the other is Danny Green, uh, who was drafted by the Cavs and then waived. Um, He'll be coming. I had Matthews. I had Wes above Danny Green because I just as an offensive player, I think Danny Green was at his peak was and is better defensively than Wes, but it was close. Offensively, Wes was more prolific and could actually get you a bucket in the post if you tried to hide your point guard on him. He Peak Wes Matthews could get you a bucket in the post, do a little bit more off the dribble. Not much, but a little bit more. So I had Wes ninth. I like that pick. That gives me the eighth pick. With the eighth pick, I'm you're going to laugh at me. Uh, I am going to take a guy who I had actually sixth on my board. And remember what I said. I had him above DeRozan. Remember what I said. If I'm taking a point guard... I'm taking a guy who has a shot that if I get the peak version of him in my culture, control his, you know, get his off-court behavior. Don't fixed, do it. You know who I'm taking. Don't do With it. With the eighth pick on the draft, Please. I'm taking Ty Lawson. I oh. Had him, I had him sixth on my board. Because the <laughs> Ty, Ty Lawson. Ty Lawson was an absolute freak athlete. And if you look at his peak in Denver, there's like a 17 and 9 with 36% from three. So here's what's happening. I'm getting Ty Lawson. I got the fastest guy in the draft. You can't deal with this guy end to end at all. Rugged on defense when he tries. He's built like a fire hydrant. I am um, getting his off-court behavior in order. Because remember, he's had some off-court issues. Good and, luck with that. Oh, no. we're gonna. Our culture is healthy. We got a really great culture. Uh, we're going to get him in shape. And we're going to say, dude, stop being so hesitant 
on pull-up threes. You're a good enough three-point shooter. We're going to train that part of your game. We're going to make you a dangerous pull-up three-point shooter. And I'm getting an all-star in Ty Lawson on my team. So I'm taking him over Tyreek Evans, over Jeff Teague, over Joe Ingles, even over DeMar DeRozan in this theoretical draft because I'm just crazy in love with the peak, unrealized version of Ty Lawson. 2013 Nuggets, we were working together. 57 and 25. Coach George Carl, GM Masai Uhari. But that's a weird... I It has to be in the running for weirdest team that's ever won 57 or more games. Iguodala, Lawson, Gallinari, Fareed, Audrey Miller, Wilson Chandler, Corey Brewer, JaVale, Evan Fournier, and a little Mozgov. Well, Gallo I, gets hurt at the end of that season and Fareed tweaks his ankle or something and they get rolled in the first round by Golden State. So here's the, here's my thing with Ty Lawson. I see your points. Incredibly fast. Really just enjoyed let, him. Just let me have it. Just say, just say, have fun with Ty Lawson. I just think 20 out of 20 times the career plays out the same. Not in my culture. I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters what team he goes to. If you're going to have issues, you're going to have issues. Remember when the Rockets traded for him, traded a first-round pick, and somehow convinced him to make the last year of his contract non-guaranteed so that they could waive him if it went wrong and, spoiler alert, it went wrong? That was unbelievable. Uh, I'm happy with my Ty Lawson pick. I defend it. By the way, life I have a life comes at you fast reminder in my house at all times. Here's what it is. 2015. 2015. So, like, not that long ago. Yeah. All-star. All-stars in New York. You know these teams sent trinkets, trinkets sometimes to promote their players for All-Star. I get a package in the mail one day from the Denver Nuggets. Oh, what's this? Package from the Nuggets. That's interesting. Open it up. It's a mug. The mug says using I thought you were going to say I- it was a mug shot. No, <laughs> it's a mug. In, in using the I Love New York uh, uh, decoration you see on shirts everywhere and stuff, instead of yeah. I Love NY, it says I Love Ty. I, love T- I Heart T-Y. As a promotion to get him to the All Star Game in New York, Ty, so in 2015, Ty Lawson was so good that the Nuggets could promote him for an All Star Game, and it was like not unreasonable for them to do so. And like two years later, his NBA career was over. That's that's how fast it can happen. Well, the other thing with him, if you put him, if you fast forward in five years with the kind of speed he had with less big men and a more wide open game, he would have been even better. I am I just standing think- I am standing by my Ty Lawson pick. You cannot dissuade me from it. Uh, but you now have the ninth pick in the draft. Yeah, I do, don't I? I I'm just so unhappy with so many of the choices. Um <laughs> You know, I'm I'm honestly at the point in this draft where I just want guys who are going to help my team win. Okay. I don't. I'm nervous. I don't I'm want to roll the dice with Tyreek Evans. I don't no. think I can win with Tyreek. I just you're going to take don't. someone I really want. I think I can feel it. Um, I just always appreciated Taj Gibson. Wow. Yeah. And and I'm just looking at like what's left on the board. And what I can just like guys who could actually help me win a playoff game. And Taj Gibson had a really nice run there for a while as somebody who in a playoff series, he could be one of your six or seven guys. He was an excellent defensive player. He was physical. He could kind of play a couple different positions. And I, I just always liked him. I think he had a good career. The Bulls fans are fond of him. And 
I, I really wanted to take Danny Green and his career stats are just not impressive. They're just not. And I think if he doesn't win the lottery and go to the Spurs and he's just on some random team, I don't even think we're talking about him in the top 14. So, and, and I'm not taking Jeff Teague and I'm not taking Tyreek Evans. So I love how just displeased you are with these names. Just, I'm not taking them. Not um, I had Todd Gibson 14th on my board. So I had him mm. in the lottery. Uh, I agree. I, there's just nothing not to like about the guy. He's tough as hell. He's a great teammate. Every team that gets him loves him. Uh, and at his peak was quite a good player. Uh, for the Bulls. Well, the other thing is we're talking about, I, I just don't need more mediocre point guards or half decent point guards. At least Taj Gibson, those are guys that he's a good version of a guy that we know succeeds, right? That yeah. little undersized forward, but he's fucking tough. He's a great teammate. You can put him in a playoff game. He'll respond and he's just not going to hurt you. I think he's on the higher end of that. We did a draft couple ones ago with big baby Davis where I took him in the top 14. Cause I was like, you know what? For a couple years there, you could play him in a playoffs. He could actually produce. He was physical. He knew what he was. I like guys who know who they were. And, I, and what I did, what I didn't want to do is take Jeff Teague. So this is a tough podcast for Jeff Teague. Uh, well, someone is going to take him eventually, I think, but and it will likely be me. It sounds like I, I, I wanted Todd Gibson in my draft at some point. Cause I just, I, I just like what he is as a player. Um, I just wouldn't have taken him that high because I, I would take a 3 and D wing. If I'm building a championship team, I would take a 3 and D wing over like a sixth man type big. But I, So that means you're taking Danny Green. Well, with the 10th pick, are we on 10 now? Yeah. Uh, with the 10th pick in the draft, I, I just, I'm going to just do the thing that GMs, that uncreative GMs do. I'm just going by my board. I'm not going to pivot. I'm going by my board. Highest player left on the board is Tyreek Evans at 10. Oh, no. <laughs> I had him at 8. I had him at eight, um, walked into the league as a 25 and five player, which the Kings essentially engineered the last two weeks of their season to make sure he hit those somewhat meaningless benchmarks. Um, had an incredible Memphis resurgence, like late in his career, like 19 and five and could sh suddenly shoot threes. I just think this, this is a talent play. You mentioned like, I just am tired of these six, one point guards who put a very hard ceiling on my team. So in that sense, we all know what the problems are. The jump shot was up and down. He's out of the league right now due to a drug suspension. Um, mm. As a talent play, rugged, tall, lead ball handler who can see over some defenses. There's something kind of modern about that player. And again, the version of him who, who gets more comfortable shooting threes earlier in his career and all of that is a really interesting player. So as a talent play, I'm taking Tyreek at 10th. I actually had an eighth on my board. As much as as much as much there's some nose holding, I, it's a talent play. Probably my least favorite type of player. See, even on your board, just a ball hog. You just use as a ball hog to you. He's going to get his stats and my team's not going to win. I would just so rather not have a guy like that. You know, it's like if he's on your team, then you have to run plays for him. Now other guys aren't getting plays. He's he's just good enough to have to play him 34 minutes a game. But if you're playing him 34 minutes a game, where are you? And didn't seem like he was that fun to play with. Checkered career, to put it mildly. And everybody just seemed very, very willing to give up on him and move him around. And I, I mean, has any was any player in this draft in more trade rumors over the last 10 years than Tyreek Evans? He's been in a lot of trade rumors. And fu it's funny, Danny Ainge. So you and Danny Ainge always kind of see things eye to eye draft-wise. Danny Ainge was always enamored by him. He always liked him. He was always trying to figure out how to get him. 
and uh, I just not my cup of tea. You'd Sorry, be changing Kyrie. your tune. You'd be changing your tune if Danny Ainge got him. No, I really wouldn't. Um, all right, I'm going more guys who can help me win a playoff game. You're you're at eleven. The pick number eleven, I believe, right now. Yeah, I really want to take Joe Ingles, but he just came in the league so late. I I don't get him for like five years. Um, so I, I'm going to begrudgingly take uh, Danny Green, three okay. D guy. Um, saw him play on really good Spurs teams in the rotation. Great character guy. One of my favorite people that I've come across. I remember uh, I remember doing the finals one year when I was on Countdown and he was getting ready to play the game and he was warming up and I was just kind of standing on the sidelines like an hour before and he just kind of wandered over and he was like, hey man, I like what you do. I want to do what you're doing for a living someday. And I'm thinking like, you're about to play in the finals? <laughs> like, like, all right. But yeah, I mean, he's he just... Everybody loves him. And he was a really, really sneaky throw-in to that Kawhi trade. I always thought that was unbelievable that he was just kind of randomly thrown in there like he was, you know, a, a free set of tires or something. I'm a big Danny Green fan. He was the next guy up on my board. I had him 10th. I was going to take him with the 10th pick. Um, just He's just a good basketball player. He made himself a good basketball player. He can, you can win championships with Danny Green as your fifth starter, which is like, that's high praise. He's easy to play with. Great defensive player, still borderline all defense. I, I think he slipped a little bit, but um, well, he also those... has a he has a bizarre basketball reference page. Because why? First of all, drafted by Cleveland in two thousand nine, the year that that they still 46, had LeBron, forty sixth yeah. pick in the draft. He plays for Cleveland twenty games rookie year, two points a game. He plays. Eight games for San Antonio in 2011. And then all of a sudden becomes like a rotation guy for them. And, it, you know, his points per game, all that stuff weren't great. But then if you look at his playoffs per game, 2013, 21 playoff games, 31.9 minutes, 48% from three, 5.43 is a game. This is in the playoffs, 11 points a game. For those two years on the on you know two iconic that those two Spurs teams were really great really could have won both years obviously he he plays forty four playoff games five threes a game forty eight percent from three so it's this three and D performance that is like the highest possible end you could ever get from somebody who just plays out of his ass um, there there were rumblings we were both at those those both those finals MVP. were an absolute ball that they used to, here's his three point line from the 2013 finals which they eventually lose the Ray Allen shot happens in game 6 game 1 4 of 9 game 2 5 of 5 game 3 7 of 9 game 4 3 of 5 game 5 6 of 10 now he falls off in the last two games but that is a ridiculous first five games of three point shooting in the in the finals and like he was taking some like hand almost in his face off the catch kind of there wasn't all just like standstill nothing threes like that there were rumblings that he was gonna get finals mvp that year if they won and they really needed it because yeah. that was they were the first contender that really figured out the spacing thing like i was watching the 2011 finals the other day which is just a bizarre finals and miami's playing like joel anthony and crunch time and like that and the Spurs were the team that were like, hmm, 
what if we spread the floor, moved the ball around, and started shooting all these threes? And other teams were figuring it out at the same time, but he was like, the fact that he could shoot threes really helped them because Kawhi was ironically the one guy who still wasn't really a threat, but everybody else on the team could shoot. And uh, I don't know, he was just great. And I, I think those Spurs teams, you go back and you watch, LeBron gets a free pass with some of this final stuff. He had a better team in 2011. They lost. And if you look at 2014, his team versus the Spurs team, just watch those games and the players. Like, it's an even matchup, and they got their asses kicked. They got killed those last three games. Remember, each game was a 20-point blowout, game three, game four, and game five. It's weird to me how the LeBron eight straight finals thing gets remembered now, like he was playing with a bunch of schmucks. 2017, he had Kyrie and Kevin Love and... Jared Smith and Tristan Thompson, he had, it was the most expensive team in the league. It's not like he was on bad teams. Well, that 2017 team was a truly, truly great team. They were awesome. That just happened to run into maybe the greatest team ever constructed because of a salary cap spike that gave the Warriors Kevin Durant. In a normal year, that team is a champion. That's a champion. That, I think that's the best Cleveland team he played on um, by some measure. 2011 against the Mavericks, he's properly dinged for. And, and really... I don't know that there's an all-time top 10 level player who has a high stakes playoff series that bad. That was a bad, there's just a flat out bad series. The whole, the whole series was just bad. I watched game two and I watched, um, one of the Dallas games. Game two is stunning. He, he's hot potato. And what's really startling about that series is how incredible Dwayne Wade was. I think Dwayne Wade was actually the best player in the league in 2011. And you know, I don't I don't know if he should have won the MVP, but when you watch that game, he's the best player in the league. He's the guy that Kobe was right before Kobe starts to slip that year. But watch Wade in that series. He's unstoppable. He has, I think, like 40 in game two. And then they just start double teaming him and basically letting anyone else try to beat him. But I, I think LeBron escapes with 2010 and 2011 in a really bizarre way. Because in both of those cases... He lost series where I think he had a better team. I think the 2010 Cavs were better than the 2010 Celtics. And they had a 2-1 lead in the series and they got blown out in the last three. Um can we fly anyway. through the can we fly through the last three picks? Because there's a yeah, team that's not that's not gonna come up that I want to spend five minutes on. Uh I'm on pick number twelve. I, I I'm very I don't want to do this, but he's number one on my board. And I'll, so I'll take Jeff Teague at twelve. And it's funny, oh. I drew I drew the point guard line. At Lawson, Holiday, Rubio, and then a drop off to Teague, even though Teague made an all-star team, I just feel like there was no universe in which Jeff Teague was ever going to be special. And there are some universes in which Rubio and Ty Lawson are more more special, at least, than than Jeff Teague. So, But Jeff Teague was a good player, so I'll happily take him at 12. That leaves you 13. And you're going to take – this is going to hurt me so much, your pick. Can I push back on Jeff Teague? He doesn't need anyone to put. He's been pushed are, enough. Just are we sure he was a good player? Yeah, he's good. Or was he was a league average point guard? He's. I mean, even if you're, you know, he made an all star team when all the Hawks made it. I, I'd have to go back and look. Like you're, you're probably right that he was still something like the tenth or ninth best point guard in basketball that year. But that's a good player. Like for the eleventh or twelfth pick in the draft, where we are, or where they, where he was actually picked, that's a good outcome. His career stats, 12.6 points, 5.8 assists, 45, 36, 84 percentage splits. He just leaves you cold. I get it. That's why he's yeah. this low on my board. He just leaves you cold. You never had the sense that Jeff Teague 
was like ready to seize the game. Was like ready to just take the game and make it his own. He was just sort of happy to exist in the game. Um, well, I'm delighted you took him because I wasn't going to take him. I know you. And, and with the 13th pick, you can, t- can, can you, you are. Well, you know who I'm taking. Uh, it's going to hurt me so much. I, I can feel it coming. It's going to hurt me. Well, obviously you have a texting relationship with him. Um, oh, it's, this isn't going to hurt me so much then. Joe Ingles. Because nope. I know, I know I get the last couple years when I think he was a genuinely valuable, unique weapon. And now I also get the next few years where he's going to remain a genuinely unique, valuable weapon with the way basketball is played now. Beloved teammate by all counts. I don't know what took him so long to make the splash that he made, but I would rather have five to eight years of him than anyone else on this uh, on this board. Um, he was 14th or 13th. He was 13th on my board, so you took him right where I had him. Um, no argument. Joe Ingles is good. Jungles is good. What took him so long was a number of different things, including the NBA sort of wising up to see that he was this, this good of a passer. I think that's what surprised people. And when he came into the league, he just wouldn't shoot threes. Like I remember one of my articles for Grantland when I was doing the Luke Walton All-Stars about him had like yeah. two screenshots of him catching the ball at the top of the arc with like no defender above the foul line. And right. he looks at the rim. He's like, yeah, no, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and he realized I can't stay in the league. And pass up shots like that. And now he's and now he's quite a good. And the shooting has sort of unlocked his passing. That gives I, me the fourth. By the way, iconic, iconic Chris Paul like weird, Chris Paul kryptonite thing going on with him. Well, he hates the Clippers because he the Clippers waived him in preseason when his wife was on the plane from Australia to come watch like be with oh, him yeah. in L.A. And they but waved remember him. him defending Chris Paul, and it was like, wow, this is like a thing. It was good. I always enjoyed it. All right, who do you Just got for 14? Basketball play. So my last pick, I'm so excited I get to pick this guy. Um, uh, I am taking with the 14th pick, Patrick Beverly. Um, I'm taking him over Brandon Jennings and Patty Mills and some other guys. Patrick Beverly, the Heat draft him. Where do they pick him? It's in it's in the 40s or 50s. Um, yeah. Um, let me see if I can find. I want to see exactly where it is, but it's it's quite low. And then um, he goes to Europe for a bit. I think he goes to the Ukraine. Um, and they Four, bring he him goes in forty second to the Lakers, but they must and, have and the Heat that. the the Heat acquire his rights immediately. Yeah. Um, for a future second round pick, um, they sign him in August twenty ten. After they get LeBron, um, and the big three, the Heatles, and then they cut him in October twenty ten. It's an unbelievable it, what if because he would have played. Remember they in the eleven finals that I watched, they were playing Mike Bibby. Perfect. It was like a corpse. Just a, like a Pat Beverly has become a winning basketball player. Perfect for like any team that's got stars. Pat Beverly, like, yeah, I'm going to shoot threes and defend the hell out of everyone and come in and get way more rebounds than anyone my size should be able to get. You want that dude on your team. Um, and if you go back and look at it, Mario Chalmers was hurt at the beginning of that season. Um, and I believe Mike Miller got hurt at the beginning of that season. They wanted to keep Carlos Arroyo as like the veteran steady hand Oof. point guarding. He flopped and then Bibby comes in. I know that one grates at the heat a little bit. And and then, but by the way, then no one signs him for two and a half years. And he comes right. back in 2013. He's like, oh, this dude's good. Where the hell has he been? So I'm proud. To I had him Patrick 13th. You had him I had him over Jeff Teague. I'd rather have Patrick Beverly than Jeff Teague. I don't blame you. I had Teague one spot ahead. Uh, so no Brandon Jennings, no Patty Mills. There's some fun Euro guys in this draft. Who'd you have 15th? 
I didn't go to 15. I'm too lazy. I just stopped at 14. I, probably, I think if I, I, if I was up, I think I would take Patty Mills. I might put Patty Mills as a winner. And then you have the fun Euro guys, Nick Calathis and Nando DiColo, who are like killing it in Europe now, but never happened here. Um, the Can one I ask you I- which guy in your draft, which guy in this draft have you still not given up on, even though they're out of the league? Well, that's a good question. And it transitions me to the team I really wanted to talk about. Uh, well, there are two. There are two. One is Terrence Williams, who was picked 11th, and I I thought Terrence Williams was going to be good. The, I never, the other, I could never figure out what he was. Was he okay. like a point forward? What was he? I, I don't know. Just not a good player. It turns out. Um, the other one that just looks the part, and it gets me to the team I want to talk about is Austin Day, who was picked I think 15th by the Pistons. Can we just talk about what was going on with the Pistons in 2009? Yeah. So. This is the year they're transitioning out of the core guys. They've already done it to some extent, but they're starting to transition completely away from the championship guys. They've well, they, already- they made the apocalyptic Iverson Billups trade six months earlier. That was just awful. Fire and then I- Iverson, so they, and Billups goes to Denver and Denver damn near makes the finals and he's a yeah. huge part of their team. Iverson gets hurt and sulks at coming off the bench and is eventually granted leave of absence because he's so miserable with the Pistons. Um, they, the Pistons, if you look at what they got for their core players, this is why it's so hard to do, do like transition from one era to another. They got nothing for Ben Wallace. They got nothing for Rashid Wallace. They got Jose Calderon for Tayshaun Prince in 2013, and they got Iverson for Chauncey and they got nothing for Rip. They waived Rip. So they turned their championship core into like nothing. Now well, they, they had draft- that weird C web, the weird C web trade C webs there in 08 right. against the Celtics. And, and by the way, they actually draft okay toward the bottom of the first and second round. They draft a follow, Max Seal in the 20s, uh, Amir Johnson in the 50s, who they trade in a cap dump. Like, they actually did okay in that regard. But then, so this this is the summer where... Um, oh, I know. I remember. This is the Ben Gordon, Charlie Charlie Bill in the way of a double whammy uh, after oh, drafting Austin Day. And it's like, the Pistons are just kind of... You look at them like... Wait, wait a second. What the hell happened here? Like, how did all these guys come on this? What happened? Like, and remember that was like Rodney Stuckey was the point guard of the future. Like, that's why they could trade Billups because they had to make way for Rodney yeah, Stuckey. Make to way some for degree. Rodney. Boy, oh boy, what a series of events. Uh, well, our listeners won't be surprised to know that um, the executive who put that whole uh, awesome package together never never got another GM job. You know Jim what, Dewar's. though? But. He did build the two the build the two thousand four Pistons, who he are did. considered one of the anomalous, impossible to replicate NBA champions. Um, because well, it's almost they don't- like a movie director that had a couple huge films early, and then just was like bomb after bomb after that. And at some point, you're like, oh yeah, I guess it's over. Yeah, the, the, I, they did. They did draft. They got Memo Okor, you know, during their title run with, with a with a pit, and of course they've got the Darko pick in there as well, which was a, which is just a franchise altering disaster. But this summer, just I would love to go back in time and like be friends with some Pistons fans who are watching the dissolution of their team. Like, oh, we got Iverson. That's kind of weird. Like Iverson's on our team. Oh, he hates it here, and then like everyone's gone and. <laughs> right. Now we have Villanueva and Ben Gordon. And by the way, eventually they have to give up a first round pick to dump Ben Gordon on Charlotte in like an all time disaster well, the, trade. Ben Gordon was coming off that awesome 09 Bulls Celtics series where it really looked like he was the next Andrew Tony or somebody. You know, he was unstoppable. And as it turned out, you know, he, and I think there was a Players Tribune piece about him that he had, he, he was having He's a had, lot of personal issues. And yeah. 
Nobody knew about it. You know what else happened that draft night in 2009? Oh, boy. There's a big trade. Darko got traded. Cleveland traded Sasha Pavlovich, Ben Wallace, Cash, and a 2010 second rounder for Shaq. And during that draft telecast, all those guys were acting like they had acquired Shaq in 2003. And it was like, Shaq's done? It's over? What are you guys talking about? But that was that was the big, awesome trade for the Cavs. And the problem for that trade with the Cavs was, you know, the, that's a package. They probably could have gotten at least somebody who could have helped them more. But, you know, LeBron, the pressure of him possibly leaving, they're just taking flyers left and right on these washed up guys with huge contracts. It's too bad. It was also the same day. I had forgotten about this. It was the same day Michael Jackson died. Yeah. Draft. Yeah. Weird. Didn't remember that. Somehow I we love- ended up with three first bout Hall of Famers in the top seven picks. And Khan. And Hashim Thabit. Two first ballot Hall of Famers. I don't know if Blake's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. You think he is? Oh, that's a good point. He would he's have at, to. He's at like 13,000 career points or something right now. I mean, I, I, I if he, you know, it, the, it feels like he's gone. Like he made the All-NBA team his first, like last year in Detroit. He made the third team All-NBA. Like, I don't know if he can ever recapture that, but it's not like he <laughs> yeah, fell off you're a right. cliff. You're right. He, he would have to move into a different phase of his career and get another like five years of 12 to 17 points a game kind of stuff. But Stephen Harden in the same draft is just, I mean, these are two of the, I mean, they're going to finish their career as two of the whatever all-time most prolific perimeter players on offense. I mean, they're just, just, those are not well, just. And if, the, if Blake's your third, your, your bronze medalist in a draft, that's pretty good. Because believe me, I've done a lot of these redrafts and that's that's a really good guy if he's your third best option. So the, yeah, the other crazy guy, times. The other guy that I'm still not giving up on, I don't know where he is in life now. Is the is the always untouchable Roddy Boubois? Well, I'll tell you who never gave up on him was Dallas because they literally <laughs> never gave up on him, and he, he was untouchable for five years. I have uh, my guy that I never gave up on, and I can't believe it. Even now, I don't even know if he's still in the league, but I thought Jody Meeks was gonna like be this guy who was just in rotations, make you know going two for five from three in playoff games for about eight years. And it never happened. And I don't know. I don't know why. But yeah, there I, are some fun names in the second crossed. round. Him and Chase Budinger, who injuries derailed. Jarebko, Dewan Blair, Sam Young, the greatest pump fake in NBA history. Sergio Yule, who's awesome in Europe and never came here. Cap, might be captain of the never came over uh, all stars. That's a fun draft. I'm so glad we did this draft. This is a great. We gonna we're gonna have to do it again in like ten years. This is such a great draft. Come on, come on. Sergio Lowe is is the uh, is Daryl's the girl he was in love with in college who still torments him at the reunion, but they've never made out. That's basically <laughs> just every year. Sergio Sergio Lowe just bats his eyelashes at him and then stays in Europe for another year. Now he's got to be over thirty, right? He's got to be like thirty two, thirty three. As far as I know, he's still quite good. Um, all right, you're, you're a busy man. You've got a whole empire to oversee there. Thank you for lending me the redraftables for one that I've always wanted to do. Um, I enjoyed the hell out of this. And uh, stay safe, stay healthy. Best of the Simmons family. And uh, I'll hope I'll see you in an NBA game before like 2022. Is that is that fair? I would love to see you at an NBA game in the next two years. Let's hope that happens. Thanks for having me. It was good to see you. Bill Simmons, everyone. 
Thanks for listening to the 2009 Redraftables. Thanks to Zach Lowe for letting us run that podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the Low Post. Stay tuned for the 2010 Redraftables. See you next time on The Book of Basketball. 